Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Welcome to Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold. Thank you for uh, spending time with me today. I watched a couple clips of the debate last night, just late at night. And there's one thing I one thing I learned, my takeaway, was if you want free stuff, you're going to have to pay more for it. That's kind of the takeaway. But I go back to uh, business as usual today. I go back to going to God's Word because that's the only thing that's true. And that's what's real and that's what lasts. And I'm looking at Colossians 2.8, favorite verse of mine. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. So I've got uh, David Wheaton uh, up, ready to go. So let's just take our normal 60-second break, and we come back, we'll bring David on. From furnace tune-ups to chopping firewood to new coat shopping, you're getting ready for the cold because it will come. I can't feel my face. As you listen to Faith Radio, you can dive deeper and deeper into your relationship with the Lord, rooting yourself in the truth of His Word so that when the winds of life blow in your work, relationships, finances, or health, you're ready. Connecting Faith to Life, Faith Radio. Have you ever found yourself laughing at a funeral? Humor and grief may seem like emotions that are opposite ends of the spectrum, but when they converge, something beautiful can happen. Faith Radio and University of Northwestern St. Paul are offering a free online course, Navigating Grief with Humor, which is designed for both grievers and those who desire to help. In this free course, find out how humor can help a grieving heart cope, build resilience, and find purpose during moments of sorrow. Learn more and register online today at MyFaithRadio.com. My friend and regular guest, David Wheaton, you know him because he's an author and a radio host and a former professional tennis player. He's the author of a couple of books, University of Destruction, Your Game Plan for Spiritual Victory on Campus, and My Boy Ben, A Story of Love, Loss, and Grace. David, welcome back. Hey, it's good to be with you again today, Bill. Yeah. Well, let's talk about the moral revolution that's going on. What is yeah, happening think, in our country? Yeah, I think it's it's pretty hard to miss, uh, especially if you have a biblical worldview to watch what's going on in our culture nowadays. You know, we did a program recently on Woodstock, the the music festival. It took place back the year I was born in 1969. It was a there was a PBS special on it. It was very interesting. It was, I think, a two-hour special, and it went into, the, you know, why it took place and the struggles they had and what it was about. And, you know, we always think of that particular time in America, the 60s, and particularly the Woodstock, as about that triad of sex, drugs, and rock and roll. And mm-hmm. that, that is what Woodstock was about. That's exactly what it was about. But it, it, one of the things that came up in that discussion was what happened in the country to go from this time, let's say, in the— 40s and 50s in America, where things were very traditional, and and you know that's when my parents were growing up, and they they talked back then about 
not even knowing someone who was divorced or if you were having a sexual relationship outside of marriage, that was something to totally be hidden. Um, there was a big stigma to that. Uh, of course, abortion wasn't around. Then all of a sudden we had this huge change and the 60s came along and everything flipped in this country and all of this came up, this this moral revolution, this sexual immoral revolution where divorce become became much more prevalent. Uh, sex outside of marriage and cohabitation became common. Abortion came around, legalized in the early 1970s. Then you had no-fault divorce. And then in the 80s and 90s, the introduction of homosexuality, the AIDS epidemic, and homo homosexuality. And now in the 21st century, we we see the the conflicts and the the the, the battles over transgenderism, and even even today of, of child transgenderism. And I don't know if you've been following these stories of our national public library system has something called the drag queen story hour, where it was just here in the Twin Cities, all over the Twin Cities, there were all kinds of libraries who invited transgender, so men who were dressed up as women to come in and read stories about transgender issues or homosexual activist issues to little children. And you think, I mean, what what country are we living in now from a standpoint of the way things used to be? This would never have been ever even thought of or conceived 50 years ago in America, even 10 years ago. And so there is this complete moral revolution coming on in this country. And the revolution, by the way, is against God's design, against God and his word. That's who the revolution is against. Even though people may not know that, that's who it is against. It's God established a design for morality in his word. He starts off right in his word, talking about marriage as being defined between one man and one woman being a, in a covenant relationship before uh, before God and man for life, raising children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So this moral revolution basically says no to that and yes to everything else. Mm -hmm. David, when I read these stories about the, the drag queen story hours, I don't know how well attended they are. I don't. I know that they're going to get a lot of press and publicity. Um, but what I'm wondering is, A, why why are they doing that? And then uh, how well are they being attended? And, uh, you know, what message are these kids, are they getting? I, I think they're quite popular. I've never attended one. But uh, from what I've read, um, they're all over the place. Okay. This isn't an isolated incident like, oh, one library in San Francisco. Right. They had one here in my hometown not not too long ago. In my small town, basically small town of suburbia where I live. Mm -hmm. And if you if you go to, I'm not sure your listeners want to, but you can go to Drag Queen Story Hour, I think it's dot com, and you just go there and they tell right what they're about. As a matter of fact, let let me read the quote from the Brooklyn New York Public Library. Judy Zuckerman says Drag Queen Story Hour is a fun, and important program that celebrates diversity in a way that children may dress and act. It encourages children, notice the word encourages, to look beyond gender stereotypes and embrace unfettered exploration of self. Wow. Programs like Drag Queen Story Hour encourage acceptance of difference and help to prevent bullying while providing an enjoyable literary experience. So what this is, is it's grooming. It's, it's trying to desensitize and groom a generation of little children. I mean, it's one thing if this were adults and people were going consensually, but this is little children who have not figured out hardly anything in life yet. And now they're being told and encouraged to 
to explore the fact that they may not be, they don't have to be, they don't have to embrace the, the, the gender that God gave them at birth, but they can change. And they can be given drugs to do so. And they can be have surgeries to, to follow those desires. And I, it's my opinion here, but I think this is kind of borderline child abuse, uh, this particular types of initiatives that are out there today. I, I would agree, uh, David, and I am disturbed by everything you just it's read. very disturbing. Oh, it's so disturbing. It's targeting young children. I mean, mm-hmm. it's, it's recruitment. And, and, and the really, the hard thing to imagine is where what the, we've, our people have lost our moral compass that parents would line up to take their kids to this. I mean, it just, it just, it's, it's a, it's a tragic place. It's a sad place to be in life that you think that is the right way to go and take your kids and encourage them to do that. When you know, not only the, the negative repercussions of, of just questioning your identity, your gender identity and so forth and how difficult that is but also just the fact that it's sinning against God. God says clearly in his word that we're not to dress as something opposite of our, of our gender, where homosexual and transgenderism are, are, are sinful against God. And that, that's really the tragic part. It puts souls at odds with, with the king of the universe. I mean, that, that's really what's at stake here. So when you hear about some of the teaching that goes on in grade schools and the diversity training that teachers do in grade schools, there used to be a time when they would send home a piece of paper for the parents to read to say, next Tuesday, we're going to be talking about X. They don't do that anymore because they don't want anybody protesting. They just want their agenda and they, they will continue to just train and teach the kids in, in this, which confuses them and frightens them, I think. Yeah, I think that this the the public education system in this country, and by the way, my son is publicly educated at this particular time, so I, I have a son involved in it. So I, I say this that this is the one aspect of American society that's not free market based. It's not based on traditional American values where people have choice. Uh, it's it's really a a communist type system where the the central planning of federal government determines what your child will learn. You can have free education, but we're going to set the curriculum for what they're going to learn. And so that's what takes place. And so if your child is in a public school, and I don't think there's anything particularly wrong with that, unless there's like an intentional undermining, like these drag queen story hours, if that is going on in your public school, and it's not the same at all public schools, or they're, they're different, you know, that's something that parents need to consider, whether a six or seven-year-old can withstand this type of, and I'll call it what it is, it's indoctrination. It's mm-hmm. a, it, it's evangelism for transgenderism. Uh, I would agree. David, let me take a little break. David Wheaton is my guest. We'll continue our discussion with David in 90 seconds. David Wheaton is my guest. We're talking about the moral revolution, what's going on in our country. We're chatting about uh, some of the transgenderism issues and the indoctrination in our schools. And I will say, David, I will say, David, you have us uh, alarmed. So, what do we do? <laughs> well, that's a good question because yeah. that's really the point of it. Is not just to kind of curse the darkness. Right. And look, in, in some ways, you can expect non-believers to do things that are in rejection of God. We shouldn't be shocked at that. 
But I think it is shocking to see the course of where this this country has gone and where where we are today. One more thing I was thinking about, another example of this moral revolution taking place is just, I think this last week, within the last few days, all public universities in California, Gavin Newsom, governor of California, just mandated every public university has to offer free abortion drugs for students at California public colleges. Hmm. I mean, think how troubling that is, wow. that a, a, a girl on a college campus can go and just get an abortion pill um, for free. I mean, that talk about a culture of death. No, no kidding. Um, troubling moral revolution. So what, what do, what do I, I think before we maybe talk about what Christians should do, I don't want to get to that, but I, I think it's, it's important to understand where this comes from. The world, there's always a worldview behind everything. Sure. And so the worldview behind this, we had, we had kind of a sharp listener point this out after this program on Woodstock, because she grew up in that generation. And she wrote me an email after the program. She said, yeah, you know, no one really answered the question about why this changed. Why did America go from basically being, you know, morally more traditional to all of a sudden what happened in the 60s in Woodstock? And she said, well, I, I, after I was out of that, I was came to a saving faith in Christ. And I began to try to understand what, what was going on in the 60s. And she said that she really traced it back. And I think she's absolutely right because I've read it in other places now. She traces it back to the influence of what's called the Frankfurt School in Germany. The Frankfurt School in Germany was influenced by Karl Marx. There's a bunch of socialist Marxists in Germany who fled Nazi Germany in the 20s and 30s to get away from Nazism. They were welcomed into some of the Eastern universities in America, like Columbia, and they begin to influence through their teaching a generation there. And by the time that generation grew up and became teachers themselves, they were teaching the 60s generation about this type of moral revolution. Now, the, the moral revolution Marx wanted, he wanted the abolition, the abolition of the family. And he said that. He said, we need the abolition of the family because that's critical. When there's a family, that means that there's a nuclear structure that really is more self-sufficient and individualistic, does not need outside help from government. But when family begins to break down through the sexual revolution, when people don't couple together in covenant marriage, but get into any kind of coupling arrangement they want and all these different things we've talked about, it, society becomes more chaotic. It, 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 the, then government has to step in to create a social order. And then what happens? Government gets bigger and has to have more control over everything, including education, like you, you mentioned, and everything else in society. So Marx knew that. He influenced these early Marxists in the Frankfurt School. They came to America. They got into our public educational system, our, our higher educational system, excuse me. And from there on, it trickled down. And it was, they called a long march through the, all the institutions of America. And they have achieved that. I don't, I don't think there's any question that they have won that long march to take over the, the moral high ground, so to speak, in America. Mm -hmm. uh, David, I had a listener wondering, uh, where does it tell us how to dress in the Bible? And I was looking at some verses, and I think there was something in Deuteronomy about... Yeah, well, uh, there's also... The, I don't have it right in front of me, but there are passages in Scripture that say that women or men should not dress like women. Should yeah. not, you, don't, you don't wear clothes of the opposite sex. God mm -hmm. made you. He designed you in your mother's womb, a, a specific gender for reasons for His glory. And we, when we embrace that, we bring glory to God for embracing the way He made us. 
But when we don't embrace that, when we resist that and reject that, we're really sinning against God. We're saying, no, I know better than you, God. And that's really the height of pride and arrogance. Mm -hmm. I think Deuteronomy 22.5, it says, a woman shall not wear a man's garment, nor shall a man put on a woman's cloak. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord your God. It's pretty clear. Yeah, it is. So how does uh, how does Daniel 9 fit into all this? Yeah, well, I, I just in the midst of thinking about this Woodstock and this, this revolution taking place, I uh, was reading the book of Daniel, and Daniel was known as this amazingly upright and righteous man who lived in this very godless culture in Babylon. Remember, he was one of the Jewish youth that was brought out of Israel with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, their you know, Jewish names before they went to Babylon. But anyway, those four of them went there, and they were going into this very immoral, idol-worshiping, godless country. But they, it says in Daniel, they purposed in their heart before they got there that they weren't going to appropriate or, or blend in or take on the, the, the sinful culture that was there. So they, they committed in advance. And so it was very difficult. It might be like what it's like to be living a, a strong Christian witness in today's society today, let's say on a college campus where everyone around you is doing everything else, but you're trying to live to honor and glorify God. So that's how Daniel and his friends were when they went to Babylon. And then he always appears in, in the book as interpreting the king's dreams and, and just doing amazing things and living this incredible life. Well, in Daniel chapter nine, he prays uh, to God about his own people. And he says in Daniel chapter 9, he says, So I gave my attention to the Lord to seek him by prayer and supplications with fasting, sackcloth, and, and ashes. And he says, I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed and said, Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant and loving kindness for those who love him and keeps his commandments, we have sinned. And he's referring to his own people because his own people have been hauled off. They have, been, they have suffered the consequence for rejecting God and going their own way in Israel. Now they've been exiled into a a foreign nation. He says, we have sinned. Notice how he includes himself in this. I mean, he was one of the most righteous men of his day, yet he's including himself in his own people's sin. We have sinned. We have committed an iniquity, acted wickedly and rebelled, even turning aside from your commandments and ordinances. Moreover, we have not listened to your servant, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, our fathers. So The model here is that I think for Christians, we need to really look at our own lives and see which in any way that has this moral revolution, has it made inroads in our own life? Is how we live, okay, you can check that to see whether we're partaking in any of these things that this moral revolution is all about, or are we watching the things on television or in movies that's selling us the moral revolution? And if so, we need to repent of it, like like Daniel said, and turn away from it and, and turn to God. And then secondly, I think the the really important issue here is as Christian parents or anyone who has influence on young people, we need to really double down on being really aware of what's going on around in our society today. I mean, you need to be engaged and informed and be taking very seriously and diligently God's command to raise children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. The discipline means correcting them of wrong behavior and instruction is, is teaching them right behavior because it is so morally confusing right now in our society today, really confusing. And always the arguments of those who reject God are seen. There's a, there's a kernel of truth in them. Oh, you got to be who you are. Well, you can choose your gen- All these things be seen, can be seem very seductive from their human reasoning. But when we're in the Word of God and comparing what 
the culture is selling us according to what the truth of the Word of God is. That's when we can recognize the lies and replace them with the truth of Scripture. Mm -hmm. Now, David, as a parent with a young son, when he starts going to school in a public setting and starts talking about what uh, what he believes and what his family has taught him, uh, what happens when there's, uh, you know, when when the school says you can't think that, you can't believe that, because that's not that's what's not what diversity is. As a believer, you can expect pushback. Right. You can expect persecution. The Bible says, and so we try to teach our son. By the way, in advance, so he's not facing it in the school for the first time. We've already told him, and he's six years old. It's sad that we have to do this. That you might be told, little guy. Hmm. that you can choose your own gender, or you might be, you were likely to be told that the, the, the earth is billions of years old and you evolved out of a, from a, an amoeba to a frog, to a salamander, to a, a, a monkey, to you, you're going to be told that as truth. And so, but here's, look what the Bible says. The Bible doesn't say that at all. So in other words, trying to prepare them in advance for what they're going to face. So they're not shocked or bewildered the first time they hear it and then debriefing every day and trying to help them come to understand for themselves, not just teaching them things like this is what we believe. And, you know, so that's it, that settles it, but trying them to having them come to the same conclusion that the Bible does in their own minds, having them work through it themselves, even in a childlike way, so they can have the conviction inside of themselves so they can stand strong in a contrary culture. Mm-hmm. David, it's certainly a slippery uh, slope and, you start to see what's going on, and you go, what is next? What 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 will be happening next? That's a very, very good question. I, I'm actually surprised in some way that euthanasia, it's, it's coming in this country. It's already in some places. I think that's going to explode. You know, if you, can, if you can choose to kill your own child, why shouldn't you choose to be able to kill yourself when your life, according to you, isn't worth living anymore? I think that's one that's coming. Um, I think there might be uh, polygamy might be something, you know, molten that, you know, if it's just, look, this is who we are. The three of us love each other. Why shouldn't we be able to be married? You know, what, what, what's the standard for why just two people should be married? Why not three? And so these kinds of things, the moral revolution will only go further and further away from God's original design of one man and one woman in covenant marriage, raising children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. That's God's standard. It's going to go very far away from that. Yeah, D- David, just give our listeners a little reminder of our of our secure hope, the anchor of Christ amidst the storm of life. Well, yeah, exactly. This this is why it's an incredible blessing uh, to be in right relationship with God, because you don't get swept down the, the river of the moral revolution that's taking place. You have a basis for truth so that you can see what's going on. You can go back to Scripture and say, no, this is not right. God's design is this. And by the way, God's design is not for our you know, to kind of spoil our, our fun in life. The Bible says that his laws are for our good. They're not burdensome. They're mm-hmm. actually, when we keep them and follow them, they're for God's glory and they're good for us as well. And so that's why it's such a blessing to, to know God and we can know him when we repent, like Daniel said, when we repent of our sin and put our faith in who Jesus is and what he did for us on the cross. God gives us his Holy Spirit. He forgives us. He gives us a whole new mind and that, that's able to process all yeah. this stuff that's going on in our society. David, thank you so much. Look forward to our next uh, visit. Have a great uh, day and hi to your family. S- uh, same to you, Bill. Yep. Thanks so much. We'll take a short break and be right back.
Welcome back to the show. I'm glad whenever I get a chance to talk to Rebecca Ree, she is an author and blogger and brilliant thinker, and she's a Hebrew, Hebrew scholar, but yet she can become so like your best friend sitting in the car taking a road trip with. So that's why I so enjoy her writing. And she is uh, back with us today. Rebecca, hi. Hi. Thanks for having me on the show. Oh, you're always a delight. I'm so glad that you could make time to come talk to me once again. Oh, it's always a pleasure. Good. So your blog, it's always uh, it's always stuff I like. And uh, the old car had me smiling ear to ear. <laughs> for many reasons. Well, initially when I was experiencing it, I wasn't smiling until I had some insight <laughs> about that. <laughs> Those are the way it works. Do tell that story. It's, yeah. a, it's a fantastic one. So um, the story is, it was not too long ago, I decided to go on a little, a little shopping trip. I needed to buy some clothing. And I went to a little uh, strip mall, parked my car, went inside a store. And um, as I was coming out of the store, I was kind of lost in my own absent-minded thoughts. And I had my keys in one hand and my shopping bag in the other hand. And my feet were just kind of leading me where they would go um, because it was time to go home. And so I stopped in front of a car, looked down, and had kind of a, a memory jogging moment, which was the reason was being that I had stopped in front of a car that was my car. It was a Subaru. And I had, it was a blue one, and I had driven one for years. But the problem was that I hadn't driven one for five years. I actually traded that car into the dealership when I bought the, the auto that I own now. Mm-hmm. So I found myself standing in front of a car that looked like a car I had driven several years ago, as if the intervening years had not happened. And I would <laughs> add that in those intervening years, I had my son. So I'm thinking, okay, major life events have happened to me. What led me back here to this point as if time hadn't happened? So um, kind of brought that home in the back of my thoughts and mulled over it for a few days. And the only thing that I could really come up with was that the pull of the past is very, very strong. That was the, the sort of caption to the story that I came up with. It's kind of like an invisible undertow, and you're always under the influence of the past in some ways, whether you realize it or not. It's kind of working on you, and when your guard is down, such as mine was when I was absentmindedly thinking about other things, your past can take you places that you never intended to go, and Landing in the wrong parking spot is kind of an innocuous thing. It didn't, you know, didn't harm me in any way. But what happens if your mental train stops at a darker station? What if the default place that you go to when you're not um, watching yourself carefully is a place of pain or a place of trauma? What if that's where the undertow takes you? Um, And I was thinking, you know, who has the mental capacity or even the energy to police one's thoughts all the time like how would you create some kind of enclosure in your mind where you could like safely wander and never wind up in a bad place and um that's a really hard problem to tackle and i think it's something that's that uh, affects all of us where our minds tend to wander so um as i contemplated that problem i realized that the past really cuts both ways you know we know how the past can take us to a place we didn't intend to go like it did that afternoon. And often, how many times have you actually, like when you're driving the car 
and you remember a conversation that you had, and you said something thoughtless. How many times have you actually physically cringed? I know there's been times for me or that I've just really regretted either something that happened to me or something that I did to somebody else. The past is, is always there, and it, we're very aware of the way it cuts in that direction. But um, I think we're not as aware of the, the influence and the opportunity that we have to have the past cut in a different direction where something good comes out of our remembrance. And it's not something that comes to us just sort of automatically and absentmindedly, but it's something good that comes to us because we have intentionally chosen to think about something in the past for, for a good reason and a good effect. Um, I think Paul the apostle, apostle would have said it this way. He said, whatever's true, whatever's noble, right, pure, lovely, admirable, think on these things. I think that's the direction he's cutting in when he talks about that. And I think it's significant that Paul says this because he was a one-time, you know, we know him as the, you know, the founder of the church, and we know him as the, the writers of the New Testament. But I imagine him as somebody who never forgot that he was a persecutor of Christians, that that's how he started. And I think he had a mountain of regret upon his back that as a human being, he always had to fight against. I mean, who knows? That could have been the thorn in his side. But he he definitely was somebody who knew something about remorse and regret and the pull of the past upon you. So when he said these, that you know, think about what you're going to think about. It's, it's a message we should really heed. So I decided, okay, I'm going to try to remember something from the past that is actually uplifting and helpful to me in a profound way. And the memory that came back to me was this. There was a time a few years ago when um, I was leading a Bible study on the Yale University campus for um, students, and it met once weekly in the evenings. And at the same time in my life, I was also um, a caregiver for my grandparents, both of them, my grandfather and my grandmother, who lived in Long Island at the time and were just at that point in their, in their growing old that they needed a lot of help. So often I would uh, drive to Long Island and take them to doctor's appointments and get prescriptions and do shopping and clean their house and do all of that. And at the same time, I was leading this Bible study, and some days those two things coincided. So I would begin the day by going out to Long Island and doing all those things, and I would end the day on the Yale campus leading these students. So I would call that a double-dip day, and they were very, very—it was like um, a marathon, running a marathon. So I found myself one morning waking up, and I had this very, very full day of wearing two different hats, in front of me, and I was feeling really unequal to the battle that I felt like the task, really unequal to what lay before me. And I remembered the story in the Bible of Moses leading uh, the Israelites into battle um, for land that they wanted to take over that was inhabited by hostile people. So he came, he went up on a hill to oversee the battle, and the Israelites were fighting beneath him. And as long as he held the staff in his hand high up, the Israelites were winning the battle. But when his arms grew weary and the staff started to fall, they began to lose the battle. So lucky for Moses, he had two companions on either side of him, and they quite strategically and wisely held up his arms, literally, so that the staff would remain high up, in view, in power, and the battle could be waged until it was won. So that was the story that came to my mind as I was facing this long day. And 
And one of those, I keep talking about some of these prayers that you just kind of throw up in desperation, desperation, but you don't necessarily think that they're going to be answered in such a powerful way. You just say them. I threw up a prayer and I just said, God, could you hold up my arms today? Mm. <laughs> could you? That's all I said. Mm-hmm. And then I got my car and did what I had to do. So then several hours later, several miles later, several tasks later, I was at the end of the Bible study. And usually that was the time we reserved for people to share about what was going on in their lives to get prayer if they needed to get prayer. And I think I was the last one to go. And I don't even remember whether I said anything articulate or not, but I think everyone in the room could realize just how weary and how much I had poured out that day. And so they decided that they would pray for me. And so they started to draw close around me. And just before they started to pray, one young man stopped and he said, you know, I was in class today, and we learned a, tr- a tradition between student and teacher in Africa. And in Africa, um, the way students honor their teachers is they hold up their arms. He said, w- would you um, let us hold up your arms today, Rebecca, as we pray for you? And I'm not even kidding. That mm. really <laughs> happened. And um, I was just so taken aback and so um, floored by the fact that my the prayer that I said verbatim in my state of exhaustion and and kind of unbelief had been answered word for word. So the students came around me, they held up my arms and I prayed, they prayed for me. And I'd have to say, of course, that little, that little um, bit, that little uh, coincidence happening had effects far more than just that night. I was encouraged. I had a lot of mileage out of that encouragement. And so just remembering that story and taking something from behind me that was good and putting it in front of me to look at instead of always being taken unawares by something jumping on me from behind, but saying, no, I'm going to actually sift through, look at something good and put it from behind and put it in front of me. So I can be reminded that, you know, if I let him, God will always reach me. And that made me ask the question, well, then how do I let him? How do I let him reach me? And I thought, well, by making, First of all, making sure that I'm surrounded by people who want to support me and help me so that that do that. And second of all, by making sure that I'm reading the stories whether or the, the letters, whether it's Paul or whether it's Moses, but my, my nose is in the book that's going to remind me of stories that will set off that kind of chain reaction of memory that cuts in a good direction. Mm. So that was and I'm, and it can be a small thing. It doesn't have to be a big thing. I'm not saying that we shouldn't do the big things like seek professional help if the, if the past is really jumping out at us and controlling us. But I am saying there's lots of small things that we can do right now that do add up. And one of them is to, to just really think of a small thing from your past that you can set in front of you to gaze at. Rebecca, that story is so powerful and, and so wonderful. And you told it so beautifully. And I'm thinking just about, you know, when you went out into the parking lot and you saw your your old car versus your car that you're now owning and how the, your mind, our minds can, can go to darker places, like you say. And I, why is it? Because, you know, Paul, like you said, says whatever's right and pure and lovely, admirable, think on these things. Why do you think our, our default is to trend darker? Um, that's a really good question. Uh, I think they're, uh, in Jewish tradition, they call that the Yetzer Hara, the trend towards evil, the pull that happens there, the pull towards darkness. Um, I would say 
two things. It's kind of like if you if you have ever worked in, a, in an environment with colleagues and people give you constructive criticism and people also uh, give you compliments, it's usually the, the critiques that you remember most vividly, right? Not so much the compliments that people mm-hmm. give you. We always do trend in that direction. I think because, first of all, just the fact that we live in a broken world and it's undeniable, uh, you know, the hurt and the pain and the darkness that pe- people are in and that we find ourselves in. So we're daily and hourly reminded of that struggle between the light and the darkness. And I think also that um, our mistakes and our hurts tend to be way more immediate uh, to us emotionally than the good things. I wish I understood why. <laughs> that was, but I I do think it's because uh, they're unresolved. Things that are open-ended and unresolved are almost like an open wound. If you had some kind of laceration on your body that hadn't been stitched up, there's no way you couldn't not pay attention to that, that that wouldn't dominate your thoughts and your experience and pull you in all kinds of directions. And I think when dark things happen to us, we don't automatically heal from them right away. Often we carry them years and years later, and they're still an open wound, and they're still demanding our attention. So I think a lot of it has to do with unresolved uh, issues that need to be brought into the light and healed. Mm-hmm. Rebecca, let me take a little break. Dr. Rebecca Ree is my guest. You can go to RebeccaRee.net, and you can uh, read this story that she just shared, and many, many others. They're all amazing. R-E-B-E-C-C-A- R-H-E-E.net. We'll take a little break and be back with Rebecca in just a minute. Do is praise your name from the rising of the sun to the going down of the same. You are my God and all I want to do is praise your name. Welcome back to the show. Rebecca Ree is my guest, and we're uh, just chatting about her her blog, which is so much fun. And she, um, uh, according to the blog, Rebecca, you had a little uh, impromptu birthday party for your seven year old, and you got you got <laughs> one of those inflatable bouncy houses. So you're my new hero. Thank you. Yes. Any, anybody who attempts to throw a child an impromptu birthday party should get some kind of trophy. I, I think so, too. Way to go. Yes. So tell yes. me how that went. So that blog that I talk about, the birthday party, has got a, a little strange title. It's called the Super, Superhero Split. So we, we threw my son um, a birthday party, and we just invited the kids in the cul-de-sac to come and have cake and do the bouncy house. And um, one of the families that came brought my son a gift which was um, a, a superhero, a Batman action figure doll. It was really cool. It had all kinds of you know, parts, that, special high-tech parts, and if you pressed his belt buckle, he, he had all kinds of heroic things to say. And my son had never received anything like this, so uh, as we were cleaning up, everybody had gone home, we were cleaning up, I was wondering, I wonder how he's going to react to that gift and what, uh, how he's going to, uh, what he's going to make of it. So... My husband and I are, are finishing up, cleaning up everything, and uh, two things happened that kind of uh, demanded some uh, thinking on my part because they surprised me. First was that I found the, the superhero, the, the Batman figure, 
on the floor uh, inside the house, and my son had um, put him in the position of the splits, like he had stretched out his legs laterally as far as they could go, mm-hmm. and he had put them on, put them. So this, the Batman was sitting on the floor like in the shape of an upside down T. <laughs> it looked it, it looked excruciating. <laughs> so that was the first thing that I found was okay. He decided to do this with the doll and leave it like that. And the second thing was that after the party, instead of sort of relaxing on the first floor of our house, where it's usually where he plays all the time, where we have things set up for him to be safe and he can play independently and we know that um, we don't have to keep quite a close watch on him, he decided to go to the second floor of our house, which is really where either my office is that has all sorts of stuff he shouldn't be playing with in there, or just bedrooms, just places that we go to sleep, and that's what we mainly do. So, my, you know, after we had cleaned up, my husband and I retired, we wanted a much-deserved break. And instead of my, my son coming down and hanging out with us in a spot where we could all kind of relax, he decided to park himself upstairs where he would need way more supervision. So it was kind of thing, thinking like, hey, kiddo, we just threw this whole thing for you. You know, so you, we'd appreciate a, little, appreciate a little bit of gratitude if you could come down and hang out with us. But that's not what happened. So I put these two things side by side. I, was, I had superhero and a split in my head on the one side, and then I had my son hanging out on the second floor of our house when I'd rather him not on the other side. And when they, these two things were put side by side in my mind, um, a question came up for me that made me feel uncomfortable as if I was attempting to do a split. And the question was this, was, do I fail to respond with gratitude when someone makes an effort for me? Like, am I hanging out in the wrong place? If you want to use biblical imagery, am I in the wrong pasture, you know, when God, God the good shepherd, has just given me a good gift, and mm. instead of hanging out in one place, I'm hanging out somewhere else and doing my own thing emotionally and spiritually and whatever. And I thought to myself, I'm pretty sure the answer to that, both in the natural, like, you know, friends giving me gifts that I may not immediately be gr- grateful for, and I'm very sure that spiritually I do this to God all the time. And in fact, the very kind of unpleasant image that came to my mind was I'm sitting there still eating the cake from the party that God threw me and it's all over my mouth and I'm already voicing my next, I want, I need. Uh, I haven't even (laughs) said thanks for what's what's there. Mm -hmm. So, so um, I thought to myself, why does that happen? Why is there that stutter in my, my um, response of gratitude? Uh, Why am I hanging out in the wrong place? And why I could tell just by looking at the doll on the floor, that doll represents something going on inside me. There's something, I mean, I'm in an impossible twisted up position inside somewhere and I need to figure that out. So, and I, um, I thought about that. I thought there's really three reasons why I might not be grateful after, if, after someone throws me a party, so to speak. The first one is that I might feel entitled in some way. And I think that's always dangerous ground. It's one thing to, to feel like you're owed some level of dignity and respect as a human being. It's another thing when you start sliding into that place where you feel like you're owed deeper and uh, wider and more profound things from people just because you have a sense that they owe you, that the world owes you. So that made me think, okay, I, if I feel entitled in some area, I have to really examine that because who am I to judge who deserves what on a cosmic scale? always kind of dangerous ground to be on. So um, don't want to be withholding thanks because I feel entitled. The second thing was I realized I I often am not grateful because I'm angry. 
because there's somewhere there's been a disappointment where even if the person comes through this time, I'm thinking, but you didn't come through last time. So that residual anger, even if I am able to feel some level of gratitude, it can be tainted by the fact that I'm, th I'm thinking about some other time that I still uh, haven't resolved my anger over. So that was the second thing. And then the third thing was I thought, you know, sometimes in life, we are so traumatized. We are so battered. We've been like every day we get up and we get beat, beat up, beat up, beat up that we might come to the point where we're afraid to lift our head and even acknowledge that something good has come to us because a, we're afraid it's either going to get taken away or B it, it, it feels more comfortable to stay in the beat up place than to try to cultivate some kind of sense of hope or expectation that the, the blessing that we see coming down the road is actually stressful to us because we've been in a bad place so long. So, all of these three things, whether you're entitled, you're angry, or you're, you're traumatized, um, they all amount to being in an impossible position that you really cannot stand. I mean, when I saw that, that doll that my son left, I immediately took him out of that position because I couldn't stand to look at it. <laughs> and I think there's a, there's a certain level of urgency about any one of these things that we're struggling with that we have to address because ultimately they have to do with how we're feeling about God and how he's treating us. And how you feel about God affects everything. And I, I realized I, for a long time, I've been taking my pain very personally. And if something bad happens, you could, your brain can go to that place where you think, well, this is divine punishment for something. You know, this is payback for something. And life is hard enough without having to battle really dark thoughts where you, you really kind of start holding God responsible for your struggles in a way that's really unhealthy and really untrue. So... I had to ask myself, well, what do we do to get out of that impossible situation? What is the equivalent of, you know, getting that doll to stand up straight again? And I think what I came up with was, you know, we're all trying to be superheroes in our own way. We're all, you know, fighting to, to do what's right for our families and our friends and our, our colleagues and whatever God has called us to do. But um, what I came to that day is I after the party was this, that I mean, I'll just read you a little excerpt. It says, maybe the mark of a real superhero is to say enough. It's time to stand up, however unsteadily, and walk away, however hesitantly, from the places to which I have retreated in numbness or pain, vexation or sorrow. It's time to come clean about the trouble I'm having emotionally and spiritually. So like my son kind of retreating to this awkward place after the party, we need to maybe be willing to stand up and take a step away from that place and get honest and share with maybe one safe person, hey, you know what, I'm really upset. I either feel entitled or angry or so beaten down by what's been going on that I'm not processing what happens in my life in the light of truth anymore, and I really need some help. So that's what the, the superhero split came and, and gave to me that day when I saw what my son had done with the doll after his party. And I have to laugh, Rebecca, because I do look at the picture of the superhero in the splits position on your blog, <laughs> and it makes me laugh that you is this is an inanimate object, and yet you still had to straighten the legs because you couldn't take it. I couldn't take it, yeah. no. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Rebecca, for doing the show. I'm always delighted to hear um, from you, and I love your stories, and I love your blog and your writing. 
if you want to head to her website, it's Rebecca Ree dot net. Uh, Rebecca is R-E-B-E-C-C-A-R-H-E-E dot net. That's her website. You can uh, sign up to get her blogs delivered right to your email because that's what I do. I make it easy on myself. Rebecca, thanks so much for doing the show. Oh, you're very welcome. Again, it was my pleasure. Thank you so much. That wraps up our show for the day. Thank you so much for listening and being with us today. Um, Just I love you and I, I love that you support and listen to Faith Radio. As you lay your head on the pillow tonight, just know that God's working out his great plan in your life. God bless. I'll see you tomorrow. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.